Thank you, Marigold, and um, a warm welcome from me this morning. My name's Jake. In case you don't know me, it's a, a real joy to be with you all and a special joy to have the Machels with us. So thanks again for your presentation. Huge encouragement of the Lord's work in your family and in Chad. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that we'd hear the words from your mouth this morning. Um, may your teaching drop as the rain um, did last night. Would it fall like a gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the, the, the herbs? Uh, lead us to ascribe greatness to you this morning, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. And when I was last in the States, which is the, the November before COVID, a little while ago now, I went out for dinner with two Americans and two Brits. And after my meal arrived, we all started tucking in. I made an unwelcome discovery in my food. I forked out a bit of plastic. Now, I'm a dual citizen, but in situations like this, I'm very much British. So my uh, close friends and families, they know how awkward I get when something like this happens and, and I have to make a complaint. Um, so instinctively, I just wanted to sort of take out the bit of plastic, fold it up in my napkin, pocket it, um, and pretend like nothing was wrong. But my friends around the table had already spotted what had happened. They spotted this alien object in my dish. And the Brits at the table began to express their shock in um, kind of moderated whispers. <laughs> and the Americans were already calling over the waitress. Nightmare for me. So um, she comes over. How can I help? All eyes turn to me. Um, oh, yes. Um, well, I'm, I'm incredibly sorry to bother you, but um, there's, a, there's a bit of plastic in my food. I really don't want to make a fuss. I'm happy to eat it. Um, I'm so sorry, sir. I'll, I'll take it back. I'll, I'll get you a new, new dish right away. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Um, that's too much. Uh, please don't worry. Apologies. I know you're busy. Um, please, it's fine. It's, it's delicious, by the way. Now, at this stage, the, the Brits were squirming and trying to... Um, act normally like nothing was happening, starting another conversation, and the Americans were in stitches of laughter. Um, why are you apologizing for plastic in your food? Well, the answer is, I hate complaining. Um, I'd much rather assume responsibility and apologize than deal with the awkwardness of confrontation um, that comes with making a complaint, because I'm fearful of negative impressions, the negative impressions of others. But the truth is, that's not a virtue. And pretending all is well when it's really not can have much more serious consequences. Think about, for example, the parent who senses something's wrong with their daughter at school but doesn't go to speak to the teacher. The employee who sees a colleague being bullied in the workplace but remains quiet. The nursing home employee who turns a blind eye to the mistreatment of residents. Of course, for those in more vulnerable positions, it's especially difficult to speak up in complaint. Understandably, it takes great courage for the child who's being bullied at school to share it with teachers or parents, for the worker on, zero, on a zero-hours contract to make a formal complaint about their malicious boss, or as we've sp spoken about in, in recent times, the church member to challenge the strong arming of a power-happy church leader. 
One of the reasons that victims of abuse find it hard to speak out is because they see the resulting conflict as a sign that something's wrong with them, not with those who have harmed them. But wonderfully, as we see this morning in Psalm 64, that is not how God sees our complaints. In the Christian life, as we see in this psalm, coming to God with our complaints is actually a means to spiritual protection and joy in God. Before God, when we acknowledge the evil or malice that comes our way, far from being met with shame or animosity, we'll discover something even more profound and beautiful on the other side of the darkness. So let's enter into this psalm together, not skipping over the parts that might seem awkward or out of place to us. As the psalm begins with the terror of an enemy at large. David says, hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. That word threat is very, very striking. Because the root meaning of the word has to do with um, a dread of debilitating terror. The kind of dread that those who have worked with the, the previous government in Afghanistan, for example, um, are experiencing now as militants go from door to door in Kabul in search of dissidents. So this prayer is not David putting on a brave face. This is David, David vocalizing his deep-seated fears. He really feels like the enemies are surrounding him, and he is afraid. But what is he afraid of exactly? Who is his enemy? Well, here in this psalm, we don't know exactly. Sometimes in the psalms, um, they highlight specific events of David's life. At other times, they're more general. But actually, we don't need to know all of David's immediate circumstances to grasp the meaning um, the, the, um, uh, the message of this psalm. Because you know the psalms are much more than simply historical records of David's life, of his personal trials. They have a greater God-given function and purpose which extends to people, times, settings, places beyond the immediate context. So yes, this is a psalm of David, as it says at the beginning. But David is a representative of Israel. Moreover, David is the Lord's anointed, the one who leads God's people. So his experience was entirely bound up with theirs. As such, the Psalms were taken up by the whole people of God. The Psalter was their collective songbook. What's more, as we know from salvation history, King David prefigured the king, the embodiment of Israel. And so in God's providence, these Psalms of David reflect not just his role in ministry, but the role, the ministry, the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, as a faithful Jew, rightly, appropriately, and perfectly took up these Psalms as his own. Now, that might spark all sorts of questions, perhaps about scripture, perhaps about history and all of reality. But the general point is, when we hear the Psalms read as the voice of Christ, as we can and as we should, they provide 
an even deeper and richer understanding of his kingship and ministry. He was the one constantly under threat, conspired against, and eventually experiencing the terror of a band of enemies crowding round him, nailing him to a cross. Far from something being wrong with him, the experience of this psalm displays what true faithfulness looks like in the face of evil. But here's where the psalm really comes home to us. For just as David's psalm was taken up as a psalm of Israel, and therefore taken up as a psalm of Christ, the king, the true Israelite, so this psalm can and should be taken up as a psalm of Christ's people. In Christ, this psalm belongs to the church. As people, as, as his people rather, it's not just that we can talk to God like this. We can pray this very psalm. Now just think about that. On the occasions that we read the psalms, we're not just reading about God, we're not even just hearing from God, wonderful that those things are. In Christ, we're also being given a means to God. The psalms shape the language of prayer in which God delights. They take us to him. So the next time you read a psalm, have that in mind. Perhaps say it out loud and speak it as best you can to God, knowing that he has provided these words for us to commune with him. But we must return to this psalm, Psalm 34. And the question for us is, in taking up this prayer of David and of Christ, who specifically is our enemy? How do we pray this psalm as Christ's people? Well, David's enemies may have looked different on the surface, but in the end, the enemies of David were exactly the same kind as the enemies of Christ. The enemy of this psalm stands for all that is opposed to God and his anointed one. And for us today, that includes enemies of Christ in the world. It includes the enemy within. In New Testament language, we might call that the flesh, indwelling sin. And in John's Gospel's terms, which we've recently gone through, the enemy from below, the devil. Hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, in Paul's language in Ephesians. As Christians, we pray that all the time, by the way, when we pray, deliver us from evil. Deliver the church from adopting worldly, anti-Christian values. Deliver us from the self-promotion, self-service, and self-righteousness of our natural instincts, which are so powerful. Deliver us from the unseen spiritual power seeking to tear the church down, something we don't often talk about or don't talk about often enough. But notice what's most terrifying in the prayer for deliverance um, in this psalm. The thing that's most terrifying for David is the noise. Verse 2, hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from that noisy crowd of evildoers. It's the noise, the sounds, the voices of those conspiring against him. David describes the main weapon of the enemy as their words. 
Verse 3, they sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent man. They shoot at him suddenly without fear. Here's a weird question. Go with me on it. When was the last time your tongue was tired? I'm pretty out of shape at the moment. Um, my tennis partners in the congregation know that. So when I play a game of tennis, for example, it feels like every muscle in my body aches afterwards. But you know, I've never known tiredness in my tongue, in the muscles that make them up. Unlike the muscles in my neck, in my shoulders, my arms, my back, my legs, whatever, I don't ever have to warm up my tongue. I'm able to use it when I want, however I want. And that's not a brag, by the way. And most people's tongues work in the same way. You know, my tongue is so strong that sometimes, even without thinking about it, it, it speaks. At other times, with very few words and not much effort, I can make really big things happen. So in my house, even if I just whisper the word ice cream, people shoot up and become alert all in one moment in excitement and if I follow those words with just kidding I can make the same people cry <laughs> don't, don't worry I, I wouldn't actually do that to Nicola the, the point is the tongue is an immensely powerful thing and used as a weapon like the sharpest of swords it can penetrate right to the very core of a person with ease like an arrow shot by an experienced bowman, is deadly accurate. By our words, we are capable of doing violence against other people. Now, is that how you think about the wrong use of the tongue as doing violence against someone else? But with words, we can do great damage. We can insult, humiliate, dominate, but you know, you don't have to be big and brash like a warrior to do damage with the tongue. As a weapon, the tongue is, is very versatile. It can be used in lots of different ways. In fact, it's often the smiling assassin who does the most precise and lasting harm, who delivers the blows that you don't see coming. So with our words, we can also compel, coerce, manipulate, lie, slander, gossip, just unsettle someone. What's more, it doesn't even matter if it's in public or in secret or online. It can still be effective. It really doesn't take much to hurt someone with our words. Evidently, David knew that. He was constantly under threat of those who were out to topple him. But it was the thought of them conspiring in secret and suddenly assaulting him with their words that most petrified him. Verse 4 again, they shoot from ambush at the innocent man. They shoot at him suddenly, without fear. And of course, Jesus knew what that was like. Perhaps you remember from our sermons in John's Gospel how Jesus' opponents were constantly conspiring and grumbling against him in the shadows. Without qualms, without any shame or regret, and despite the obvious holiness and goodness of Jesus, they insulted him and villainized him. They misrepre misrepresented him and tried to smear his reputation. From the very beginning, from those words 
uttered by the serpent in, in Genesis. The destructive use of the tongue is characteristic of evildoers, of those who oppose God and his anointed. And unfortunately, and tragically, that's no less true in the church. Because whenever we use our words to harm other Christians, to vilify or belittle them, we are in fact adopting the posture of the enemy of Christ. Now that's a sober thought. The trouble is in the church it's not always easy to recognize because it's the instincts of corrupt humanity in our flesh were allied with everyone in the world in this mindset. So verse 5, you know, you, you see it um, here. They encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their snares. They say, who will see them? They plot injustice and say, we've devised a perfect plan. Surely the mind and heart of man are cunning. Now that word cunning can be rendered deep. In other words, sin runs deep. It's hard to spot. You see that here, don't you? How is it that people can actively encourage one another in evil? How can people be so committed and stubborn in doing harm? How do people think they won't be exposed or found out? That there won't be any consequences? How is it that people in doing harm actually think they're innocent? That's what the word perfect here uh, means, by the way. Literally, it means not innocent. So someone can fire off arrows of harmful words against someone who's done no wrong and then consider themselves guiltless. Sin runs deep. The alliance of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil is incredibly strong. It's dreadfully powerful. Yet Christians... Do not despair. Don't despair about the state of the church. Don't despair when you're convicted in your battle against indwelling sin. Because look at the very next words of the psalm. And hold on to them more than anything else today. If you only go away from church today with two words in your head and in your heart, let it be these. But God. But God. A young person recently asked me a really important question. They said, where is God when the world seems so strange? By strange, they meant difficult, chaotic, out of order, painful, unfair, unsettling. And that young person is absolutely right to recognize the strangeness of the world. It's not as it's meant to be. Suffering and evil is pervasive. But despite the fearsome power of the enemy still at large, here's the thing. God will win. Verse 7, but God will shoot them down with arrows. Suddenly they will be struck down. He will turn their tongues against them and bring them to ruin. All who see them will shake their heads in scorn. In other words, the enemy's weapons will ultimately be their destruction. In speaking against the Lord's anointed and his people, they heap judgment on themselves. God's word of justice will ultimately be the final one. Because that same king who was mocked, slandered, and vilified by his enemies has risen 
He's been vindicated. And he now sits enthroned in glory, triumphant as judge. And that is good. Despite appearances, evil will not have the last laugh. The final word does not belong to those who seek to do harm, however powerful they seem. He is the reason that all mankind, in verse 9, will fear, will come before God in appropriate reverence and awe. In the end, everyone will see that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, if you're feeling discouraged by the state of the church or scared by the fact that you're the only Christian in your class at school or frustrated with the progress of evil in your life or in the world, in, for example, in Plymouth, in Afghanistan, or indeed in the wars of Chad, keep saying these two words, but God but God has done wonderful things, but God will win, but God will bring down the enemies of his anointed and will protect his people, but God. There are a thousand things you could finish that phrase with. But as we close, I want us to notice just one more thing to encourage us as God's people today. And it comes in verse 10. In verse 10, rejoicing goes before refuge. Let the righteous rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart praise him. We may not be able to see the end of evil and the final refuge to come. But even now, you know, the same love and favor that God directed towards his servant, David, that same love and favor that he directed towards Israel, David's people, that same love that he directs towards his king and anointed son, Jesus Christ, he directs towards us. And in that, we can greatly rejoice. In fact, in and of itself, that is a kind of spiritual refuge from our fears and our enemies. As we'll sing in a moment, those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. And so let all the upright in heart praise him. Amen. Thank you so much, Jake. How encouraging. You just see, he's just helped us to see, hasn't he, that even though we go through such difficult times, even when we feel that we have enemies all around us,